So, Christianity. Christianity has a brand problem. What am I talking about? Well, if you pay attention to the world and to what culture says about us, about Christianity, the summary might go a bit like this. They might view us as judgmental, homophobic moralists who see, who think that we're the only ones going to heaven and we secretly kind of are excited that everybody else is going to hell. Let me just ask you the question. Do you think I'm very far off from how the world sees us? I don't think so. We have a brand problem outside the church as they view, look at us. And we have an identity problem within the church. And here's why. It's because this term Christian that we've been using for a long, long time, this term Christian isn't defined anywhere in the Bible. And yet we all call ourselves Christian and they all call us Christian. But the term Christian was only used three times in the Bible and it was a derogatory term used by non-Jesus followers to describe Jesus followers. And because this term that we all use, that the world uses, that we use for ourselves, because this term Christian isn't defined in the Bible, we have basically said, well, a Christian can be anything we want it to be. A Christian can mean anything we want it to mean, which means we can do whatever we want to do. And so as a result, Christians have basically been doing just about anything they want to for 2,000 years. We haven't stood out from society as much as God has called us to. We have Christians on all sides of the political aisles, all sides of the social uh, justice aisles. We have Christians who go to war against each other. It's unbelievable. It's all over the map. I think our pro one of our problems is, is somewhere along the way we chose to embrace this label, a wrong label, a wrong term. But in this series, we're, we're calling us to something, and we're discovering that Jesus never called you and I Christians. What did Jesus call us? What, is, what did Jesus call us? Does anybody remember what did he call us? Disciples. And our challenge for each of us is to begin to see ourselves not as Christians. You can define that however you want. But to actually see yourself as a disciple of Jesus. To choose to say, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. A follower of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is a follower, a learner of Jesus. And as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus... If, if you will pursue that and say, that's who I am, that's what I'm about, that's who God has called me to be, if that is you, you say, I want to be a disciple, I want to be a follower, I'm going to shed this Christian term in my own mind, people may call it of me, but I'm going to shed that, I'm going to be a follower, I'm going to be a disciple. If you go down that path, then there is no doubt from Scripture of how we are to behave, how we are to live our life. There's no doubt as to what we are to believe, what we are to do, and especially how we are to treat other people. Why? Because Jesus defined that for us. He defined it clearly. He didn't define it theologically. He didn't define it theoretically. For Jesus, he described it and defined it practically. John chapter 13. If you haven't turned there, John 13, verse 35 Jesus said this, he said, by this, and we'll tell you what the this is, by this, everyone will know that you are my 
disciples. There's the term. Jesus is all about you being my disciple. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples. If you, and here's the this, by this you'll know, this is what it is. If you, and what's the word? If you love one another. Not look at what they believe. Not look at their Sunday morning attendance patterns. I want people to, Jesus says, to identify you and describe you as a follower of me based on one thing and one thing only, how you treat each other inside the church and ultimately how you treat other people outside the church. And we've talked about that and we've been discussing that and we've, we've, we've talked about the idea that Jesus said and intended that, that this concept, that this idea that's found in Matthew tw- chapter 22, you can turn there, Matthew 22, that this idea of love stands as a gatekeeper for us. It's that gatekeeper by which we view and see the laws, the commands, the, the, the call of God in our life. For example, when Jesus asked, hey, what's, what's the best? What's the greatest commandment? What's the most important? And Jesus said in Matthew 22, he said, I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second com- greatest commandment is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, Jesus then said this. He said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You know what that means? It means that every time you want to know, every time I want to know, what should I do in this situation? How should I respond in this circumstance? What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about this group? What does the Bible say about my spouse and raising children? What does it say about my ethics? What does the Bible say about my morality? What does it say about sex? What does the Bible say about anything? Because Scripture is full of all kinds of things that instruct us and teach us in the way we're to go. Jesus said, make sure when you open that word that you look at all of that through the filter, through the lens of love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love others as yourself. That's how you look at scripture. Jesus is saying, don't you dare use my law, use my command, use my word to unnecessarily hurt or disenfranchise other people. Why? Because all the law, all the prophets, all of it, everything in the Bible, it hinges on, it's filtered through the commandment, love God with everything you have and love others as yourself. And we talked about what Christians do with that concept and idea. That Christians will take that idea that Jesus has said and they will look for uh, ways around the simplicity of this. They will look for, Christians will look for the exception. Christians will look for the out. Christians will look for the loophole. But Jesus' followers aren't interested in loopholes. Christians take the Bible and they open it up and they look for loopholes in the Bible. They're going to use God's word however they can, find a loophole so that they can avoid doing God's will. They use God's word to avoid doing God's will, but that's not what a disciple of Jesus does. And so we're talking about this idea that if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, that you would say to the best of my ability, I want to take the commands of Scripture seriously because I'm a Jesus follower. Which means, in every relationship, every circumstance, every single conversation, every single good conversation, every single conflict I have, I'm going to pause and at least ask the question, what would love require of me? What does love require of me? You enter into that circumstance, you head into that, that conversation, and you say, what does love 
require of me? And that's kind of what we've been talking about. And normally I'd kind of say, okay, you got that. Go talk about it in your small groups. And I kind of move on. But the Holy Spirit just kind of just kept me on this and just kind of kept me lingering on this, this idea. And the oppression I just kept feeling like I was sensing from the Holy Spirit was don't move on, don't move on. Explore this more, explore this more. Imagine exploring it with your life group. What would you talk about? Where would you go? What would be discussed? And so this morning, that's what we're doing. We're going to spend the next few minutes kind of imagining that we're in a small group. And, and it's a giant small group. And, and I got to tell you that one, one of the major differences between this small group and normal small groups is you still can't talk. Um, <laughs> so I'm still going to do all the talking. Uh, but but ordinary, I just want to take you down some of the thoughts, some of the ideas that I would be exploring in a small group to dive a little further into this conversation. And if I was in a small group, as we talk about this, one of the things that I would kick off with is I'd talk about the brilliance of Jesus' idea and concept and statement. And, and, and I'd think through it and I'd realize, you know, what Jesus is talking about, this idea of love and everything goes through the filter of love, you and I understand the brilliance of this. We understand it through our own personal experiences. I mean, I want you to think about it for a moment. There are two categories of people who have profoundly influenced your life. So we're in a small group and we say, who's profoundly influenced your life? And, and, and the idea would be it's not based on what they believe, those who've influenced your life. It's not based on what they believe, whether they're a church person, whether they're a Christian. Their influence on your life that helped you get to the point in life where you are successful in life and you are progressing in life and you are healthy in life or you're limping through life and you're struggling in life and, and you're getting stuck and, and having a difficult time. And it's not because of those people who influence you because of what they believe. The two categories of people that have more influence on your life of who you and I are today, by their actions, not their belief, by their action, those two categories of people are those who hurt you and those who loved you. Those who hurt you and those who loved you, by their actions, the people who've had the most impact on your life are those who have hurt you deeply or loved you profoundly. I mean, I want you to think about it for a minute. You are who you are as a spouse, as a friend, as a parent, as a boss, as an employee. You are who you are because of the doses of hurt or rejection you've received. And you are who you are because of those doses of love and acceptance that you received. All of us, every single person here, all of that is because of that direct influence that they had in your life by their actions that influences the security you feel and that I feel, the confidence you or I have or don't have, and our overall emotional, mental, and even physical health. It all stems from those who have hurt you and those who have loved you. In fact, if you go see a counselor, because you have something going on in your life and you're stuck, you're hurting, you're hurting others, and you can't get past it and you can't move on, and you go to that counselor, what's the counselor going to do? 
They're going to take you to this. They're going to want to know. They're going to want to figure out. They're going to want to explore who has hurt you by their actions, who has loved you by their actions. It didn't matter as a counselor's talking to you. It didn't matter what they believed. What mattered is how they treated you, how they behaved towards you. Now, here's where this gets confusing. Here's where this gets even complicated. Here's where this gets hurtful and sad on a whole other level. Many people, maybe even some of us, maybe a lot of us, or people you know, have been hurt deeply by those who have accurate theological beliefs. Who have the accurate theology, who believe the right thing. The many people, maybe even in this room, have been hurt by those who attend church regularly, maybe even serve God regularly. People hurt deeply, some of us, by someone who looked great on the outside. They had the appearance like a sheep. Everything appears wonderful, but they kind of use some Bible words. They were really a wolf in sheep's clothing. Behind the scenes, that individual took life out of you or somebody else, destroying you or even destroying your soul. And as a result, you or somebody you know walked into adulthood with issues and problems and challenges. And some of us, maybe here this morning, or those we know, still haven't been able to get through it. Have still haven't been able to get past it. You've been trying to function in the best healthy way that you can. You've been compensating as best you can. Some are here, actually. The reality is, just, just percentage-wise, some in this room this morning are barely surviving. You're certainly not thriving. Why? Because you've been hurt deeply by somebody's actions. And of course, when you think of the religious world, we're reminded of this in the news right now, aren't we? As we've been watching the news and the absolute tragedy of these predator priests who have been hurting children and doing despicable, awful things, and it's sad and it's awful, and all sorts of emotions come to all of us. How many adults today have been deeply and negatively impacted, not by someone's theology and belief or church attendance, but by the way you or they have been treated. What about the other side of the coin, though? On the other hand, here's what's incredible. There are fathers out there. There are mothers out there. There are coaches and teachers and grandparents and youth workers and Bible school teachers and group leaders and mentors who've just spoken life and approval and acceptance into your soul or the soul of those you know. There's those people who they have showed up and they showed up and they time after time again, they showed up and they spoke volumes of love into your life and other people's lives, not by their beliefs, but by their actions and by their behaviors. Their actions said far more than their belief or their theology. Well, I couldn't help as I was preparing this thinking back in my own life. And I want to invite you to do the same thing right now. Not think back to my life, but think back to your own life about those people. Go back in your brain as I'm talking. People who have poured time and energy and life into you because of the way they loved you. 
And a lot of people come to mind for me. I thought I'd share just a couple of them this morning. Uh, one of them was a coach. And this coach was a, what kind of coach? Basketball coach. His name was Denny Papp. Denny Papp was like 6'7", and I was a little kid. And I remember Denny Papp, we'd go to Del Obispo Elementary School where I grew up going to school, and we had practice. And the practice would happen, and he'd take care of us. And then we'd get to the end, and he, he'd pull me aside and said, Hey, Chris, I want to work with you a little bit. Well, I didn't know at the time. Whatever he saw as a little dopey kid, he thought, Hey, maybe I can develop a little bit. So he'd pull me aside after practice, time after time after time after time again. And this image I have of Denny Papp spending time with me after practice, just the two of us there, his son, I, actually, I remember his son was on the other side just shooting or doing layups or whatever. And I can remember he taught me how to shoot. And he took that basketball. He said, Chris, here's how you shoot the ball. And I think you could be a great shooter. I want you to take that ball and I want you to open your hand wide. I want you to take that ball and make sure you have a gap between your palm and your fingertips. And then he, we'd walk a couple feet out from the basketball hoop and he stood me right there and he said, I want you to picture you're holding that ball above your head with the gap between your palm and your fingertips. And I want you to picture yourself standing in a phone booth and trying to shoot that ball up out of the phone booth into the basketball hoop. And he showed me and he demonstrated to me and he gave me the ball. And at first I couldn't do it. Look, I, I can't even, I, I, it's hard for me with my other hand though I started to practice that, but I'd take that ball and I do that over and over and over. And as time went on, we kept doing this, shooting up out of the phone booth. And, you know, he'd start off and he'd say, hey, your, sh your phone booth is kind of low. You need to raise your phone booth. <laughs> and it got higher and higher, and I got further and further back. And as a result of that, and I have to tell you, as I talk about this, this image is real and it's vivid. It's like I'm still there. I can picture it. I can picture everything around me. Do you have that kind of scenario? You're thinking right now of that person, whoever that person is for you. And as a result of that, you know, I was a pudgy little basketball kid. Um, and I can even remember in high school, I was a short little guard. And, and, and back then they made us wear like girls dolphin shorts, um, <laughs> except they were tight. And, and there's a picture out there somewhere my dad used to keep it in his garage, you know, the ones they, back then you'd put the big posters on the gym, geez, good grief, of the basketball team, the varsity team, and, you know, the shorts are way up to here, and it's, it was terrible, and, and, you know, praise God for long shorts when that came out. Um, remember when Brother Gary, anyway, so, um, <laughs> that's inside voice, so I can remember you know, this little dopey kid and getting torn up by other players. But one thing I could do, I could shoot the ball. I could shoot the lights out. Why? Denny Papp. The time, the energy he poured into me. And I haven't shot a ball in years and years, haven't played in years and years, but I'll bet you this, I'll put this bet right now. Anybody wants to go out after church, I'll take you on. I guarantee I'll beat you. Why? It doesn't go away because of what Denny Papp did and the hours and the hours and the hours and the hours he taught me. So, take you down.
it's as real as all get out. What about you? I can go on and on. I think about Tim Butler, uh, who met with me every Tuesday morning, picked me up in his VW bus, bug, bus, bus, and he met with me. He was, he was just the, the, the coach of the track and field and cross country. I wasn't involved in that sport, but God used it. Week after week after week, we went to Molly's, had a, couple sh- had a short stack, ate, talked, and God worked in his life. I think about Dan Wright, a person my dad started spending time with. And uh, Dan wrote a book. Uh, he's actually now written a couple books. So Dan wrote this devotional book, and at the beginning, he dedicates it. He, he gives a paragraph, a sentence to Jesus, to his family, and then the next two pages, it's dedicated to his best friend. Craig Delts. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he said this. He said, Craig was the closest and best friend to me I ever had. He always encouraged me in the things of the Lord, called every day. Even when I lived out of state for a few years in the 90, God used, 90s, God used him to teach me so many valuable things in his word, my walk with Christ, daily living. He taught me how to be a true friend by his godly example. He always had time for me, and if he didn't, he made it. He took the time to teach me things, blah, 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 blah. It's with thanksgiving that I dedicate the Iron Man devotional to my dear friend Craig Delft's memory. Um, my dad poured into Dan, a fellow alcoholic. God worked on my dad, brought Dan into his life. Dan, to this day, he writes devotionals. He works with men's ministry. He's a pastor now. All because of my dad's actions. What about you? Every person here has somebody who did something powerful and amazing in your life. And I'll throw this out to you. When was the last time you said thanks to them? Maybe today one of the walkaways, takeaways, is that you leave this place and you say, I'm going to reach out to this person. I'm just going to say thanks for the positive impact you have in my life, you had in my life. And if I was in this small group with you and we went around and we'd all do this, see, this would be the, your, your turn, but it's only my turn because I only have so much time left. And we would do this and we'd all talk and there'd probably be tears in the room as we started sharing some of these amazing stories. And this is why what Jesus said is so profound. It's why it's so incredibly important for those of us who say we are his followers that we get this, that our behavior is our best play. Our behavior is our best leverage. Our behavior is our best opportunity. But somewhere, unfortunately, along the way, Jesus' followers decided to turn into Christians. Do whatever you want, believe whatever you want, behave however you want. And so we shifted our focus from behavior to belief. It went from, I love, 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 to now, I believe, believe, believe. But lives aren't changed for the good because of believe, believe, believe. Lives are changed, not by, by what we believe. Lives are changed. You know it from your own experience, just as I do. Lives are changed by people's behavior towards us, how they loved us, and yes, how they hurt us. You see, Jesus wasn't interested in coming to earth to worry about belief and make a point. Jesus wanted to make a difference. Jesus didn't say, a new command I give you. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you believe correctly. It's not what Jesus said. 
They'll know you are my disciples by how you love one another. It's action. In the immediate decades following Jesus' ascension back up to heaven, that's what it was all about for Jesus' followers. They were constantly bent back to the question, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? How do I love deeply? And if we are sitting in this small group, the next part of what I would do and talk about is let's talk about that, let's explore that, and we wouldn't think in terms of a sermon just kind of getting real linear and taking it like this. It'd be more like a circle because that's what a small group is. Circles are better than rows. And, and in a circle, it's, it's the, the thinking is like, okay, well, we're going to talk about this for a second, and then we're going to go here, and, and it's, you know, it's more spherical in nature. And so that's what I want to do for just the next couple minutes. Here's the thoughts that would come to mind for me or maybe some of you, and you say, well, how do we play that out? How do we pour that out? How do we pour it out? We understand we're influenced by those who've hurt us or loved us. And Jesus' followers say, what does love require of me? And I want to live that out, and I want to be that, and I want to do that. That's what God's called me to. And a couple ideas come to mind. Because we're asking the question, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? And one of the things that we would throw out and then discuss as a group, love requires that I don't do anything that hurts me. That you don't do anything that hurts you. And we talk about that. If you're a parent, you understand this better than those who aren't parents. Because if you have a teenager, even a young child, but you have a teenager, or you have an adult child who are hurting themselves... If they are hurting themselves, let me ask you a question. Does that hurt you? Absolutely. And some of you have adult children and you're living with the pain of that today. They're hurting themselves and you're hurt by that. You're, if they're hurting themselves by their decisions, by their action, their behavior, their choices, that hurts you as a parent. Why does it hurt you as a parent? Because you what? You love them. Same concept. Guess what? If you hurt you, you hurt your heavenly father. Why? Because he loves you. If you hurt you, you hurt your heavenly father because he loves you as your parent. Now, real quickly, just if we were in a small group, one of the things I'd also say is, I'd, hey, hey, listen, loophole Christians are going to work around this. Okay, I'm not going to do anything that hurts me. So, uh, you know, if I do that, that's going to hurt me. So I'm going to go do this. And, and it's like, whoa, 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 hold on. Loophole Christians look for a way to take God's word and avoid doing God's will. So, duh, we would all sit around and say, don't do anything that hurts myself in the context of doing God's will. Does that make sense? Does that have to be said out loud? Okay, it is anyway, so you got it. So that you, when you think through this and you go off and you go, I don't want to do anything that hurts me, it's through the lens of doing God's will. So love requires that you and I make a moral decision any moral decision, any ethical decision, any sexual decision, any relational decision, any professional decision. You do all of those through the lenses in a way that's not going to hurt myself. Because when I hurt myself, I hurt the one God who loves me and I hurt others around me. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul told them, he said, listen, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So he was saying, don't hurt yourself. Honor God with your body. Why? Because you and I, we belong to God. So I want to ask you, what have you been doing that is hurting you? What choices have you been making? What decisions have you been making that you're hurting yourself? If you say, what does love require of me as a Jesus follower? You're going to ask that question. 
because you don't want to hurt you because then you hurt your heavenly father and second part that will impact others and that's the second part of this circle we'd be talking about we say okay let's talk about that don't hurt you and you know what else we'd say don't hurt others don't hurt others love requires that i don't do anything that hurts others <clears throat> now for clarity i'm not talking about serving in the military or enforcing the law or law enforcement or self-defense the new testament explains all that of course i'm talking about interpersonal relationships I'm talking about that we just decide, regardless of how I understand the world, regardless of how I see the world, regardless of how I see my Christianity, regardless if I've been hurt by others, no matter where I'm at in my maturity, in my walk, I don't use an excuse and say that's just how I am. Regardless of any of that, I'm not going to do anything and I'm not going to say anything that hurts another person. And here's why. Because those other people that you interact and I interact with, they're somebody that God loves just as much as he loves you. They belong to God. So you belong to God, and they also belong to God. Even your worst enemy, someone who's hurt you deeply, is still somebody for whom Jesus died. What does love require of you? That you just decide once and for all, the filter through which my words go out, the filter through which my actions come out. I'm not going to do anything, and this is how it plays out. You're going to say, I'm not going to do anything to hurt or betray, or deceive, or groom, or tempt, or abuse, or hurt another person. I'm not going to do anything to stalk, or lie, or cheat, or gossip, or pressure, or deceive, and I'm certainly never going to use my theologies or my belief as an excuse to hurt somebody else. Love requires that I don't hurt myself, I don't hurt others, and then the third part of this kind of randomness together. This is almost like it's part of what we just talked about, but third, love requires that I'm not mastered by anything. And we talk about that. Because the reality is whenever we're mastered by something, it will keep you from loving you and from loving others. Here's what I mean. Nobody should have to compete with your addiction. Nobody should have to compete. My family shouldn't have to compete with my addiction. What's your addiction? Nobody should have to compete with your alcohol addiction. Nobody should have to compete with your porn addiction. Nobody should have to compete with your drug addiction or your devices addiction or food addiction or your workout addiction. Somebody after first service was like, why'd you bring up workout? Nobody should have to compete with your anger or your temper or your obsessiveness with stuff or your golf game. Yes, I said it out loud. Or... No one should have to compete with your depression or your having to be have to be with somebody else. No one should have to compete with anything that masters you. Some loophole Christians in Corinth believed that their freedom in Christ, hey, I've been freed, Jesus saved me, I can do anything I want. And Paul said, no, 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 no. Yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, you have a right to do something. But Paul goes on and says, yeah, you, okay, you have that right. That's what they were saying. I have a right to do anything I want. And Paul's like, well, well, hold on. Not everything you do is beneficial. And then he said this, I will not be mastered by anything. You say I can do whatever I want. Paul said, no, 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 no. You can't be mastered by something. Paul's saying that love requires that we get rid of anything in our life that is competing with Jesus' lordship in our life. Because you cannot, and I cannot love the way that God has called us to love as long as we're mastered by something. So what rules you? 
What has mastery over you? What has power or control over you? You're sitting here saying, well, I'm not sure. Well, what have people brought to your attention in the past? Wait, 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 wait. They don't bring anything up. Well, what is it that you don't want to hear them say? God invites you to give that up and give that over. Why? 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says, we make it our goal, our aim, because we're a Jesus follower. We want to please him. So we're going to go after this. So we take on the posture of God, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. I'll get counseling. I'll get help. I'll confess. I'll confront. I'll, I'll work on breaking this habit because I'm going to take these steps. I'll give this up. I'll give that over. God, whatever it takes. And when you and I choose to go down that road, then we have the ability to leverage love because when the church leverages anything other than love, we lose our leverage. And so, I want to ask you this morning, will you be a group of people? Will you be individuals to decide to say, the thing I'm going to leverage, not my addiction, not my issues, not the hurts I have, the thing I'm going to leverage is I'm going to leverage love. I'm going to love people with everything I have and the areas that I've been mastered by something, I'm messed up, screwed up, and I need help. I'm going to work on that with the power of Jesus in my life because I want to get to the place where I leverage love. I ask the question constantly, what does love require of me? That's what God invites you to this morning.